That's nice. But exactly like what we were talking about last week with Musk. Like, he's going to say something he shouldn't, and that could get him a lot in, in a ton of trouble. Like, it's just kind of... I think he's, I think he's, he's much more cannon. composed. I think he's much more composed than Elon is. Yeah. Um, really? Hmm. But he's... For example, like they, they're unapologetic. That's what I love about them. That's what I yeah, love about yeah. Elon. That's what I love about Alex Karp. That's how. That's the word I would use to describe it is unapologetic. And they're doing what they're doing. Their business is their business. They work with Western countries and Western countries only. And they don't apologize about that. They don't try to appease everyone in the world because that's not their job. Their job jo is to be job. the business that they created. And their mission is their mission and they're not going to apologize about it. They're not going to complain about it. Um, and I think that kind of leads us directly into what we're talking about today, Zane, if you want to open this up. Yeah. And I think we can, we can include that. Yeah. We can include that little talk. Oh, you were recording. Oh, let's go. Hey everyone, this is Intern Investing. I'm Zane here with Jamie and Connor as always. If you're interested in subscribing to the channel so you can see our 1000 sub portfolio reveals, uh, that would be super helpful for the channel and you'd get to see what we own and why in our video breakdowns. Uh, so let's dive into what we're talking about today and that is ESG and our thoughts on it. So Jamie, when we talk about ESG, what is it? What are we saying? Give us some background. So ESG stands for Environmental Social Governance, and it, it was kind of created to, uh, you know, set a standard for companies uh, making not only shareholders better off, but also, you know, the world around them, um, you know, being environmental, social, uh, you know, environmentally friendly and things like that, kind of helping the world uh, and, you know, making it a, a, a better place. Um, and so, you know, you can pick a lot of these um, you know, like solar companies or, or EV companies that fits um, kind of well into, uh, you know, the, the old ESG framework and, you know, what, what it's kind of um, trying to do. But it also includes like, um, you know, socially responsible things. For example, you can think of like uh, Salesforce's one, uh, I, I think it's like a 1% rule where they're supposed to, um, you know, spend 1% of, of their year, uh, you know, going and doing community service or something like that, or giving to charity or things like that. So they're trying to make the world, uh, you know, around them better. And so that's how kind of ESG started. But since, um, since then, over the past, uh, you know, few years, uh, and, and especially ramping up over the past few months, it's kind of turned into the standardization of morals, which might not be, uh, you know, the best thing. Uh, Connor, do you want to dive into that a little more? Yeah, the quote that I put in the doc is that it is the standardization of values on a global scale. And so, so the issue here is, okay, does everyone care about the environment? Yeah, I think at a, at a minor level, at least, everyone wants the environment to be better. They want the world to last. Um, does everyone care about social issues? Well, everyone cares about the social issues that they care about. And there is a massive difference in the social issues that one person cares about versus the social issues that another person cares about. And there's a huge political uh, aspect to that one, uh, you know, in ESG is specifically with social. And then there's governance, talking about, you know, different levels of diversity that you can have on the, on the management team of a company. And there's definitely some diversity and opinion on the thoughts on that one. And so basically what this is, is it's a cramming down of what values, you know, BlackRock cares about. So BlackRock is a huge proponent of ESG and they've, 
there's a ton of people that, that have created ESG. I think this started in the 80s, and it's just slowly become a bigger and bigger deal. And today it's something that's, you know, in every stock screener you can put ESG scores. And those ESG scores are built on a set of values for the environment. Those are chosen by a group of people. It's not just something that's, you know, set in stone. A group of people actually went out and decided what values, what scores are gonna, companies are going to get for the environment. They decided what social issues people should care about. And so they put those out there in the social aspect of it. And then governance, the same thing. And so the problem with standardizing values is values are different for every single individual. And so when you are scoring companies based on a standard set of values, you know, that's not something. And part of the reason that this got so popular is that all the ESG funds were outperforming the index for a while. And then we had this year when energy is the only thing that's keeping the index afloat. Uh, and obviously ESG is lacking a lot of energy because they um, don't look at oil companies in the right light. And sometimes they look at oil companies in, in too much of the right light, as I think we might be talking about here in a little bit. Um, so there really is no room for nuance in ESG. There's no room for nuance of values, um, whether you're talking about the environment issues, social issues, or governance issues. And so I think a lot of people have some problems with this, and it finally reached a tipping point this year when people looked at it and said, okay, this thing isn't outperforming anymore. And also the way they built those those funds was ridiculous. It was like they took all the top performers in the S&P 500 and were like, uh, it, it, it almost was the S&P 500. They're like, here it is. But we gave the ticker ESG instead of SPY, and we took out some oil companies. Go invest. Well, energy has done nothing for the last decade, so obviously this has done performed pretty well up until this year. And so, I don't know, I think a lot of people are having some problems with it. You know, it's just, it's not, it's not something that provides a lot of value, in my opinion, because if you're investing on values, invest with your own values. Don't use anybody else's because my values are different than Jamie's and Jamie's might be different than Zane's. And if that's going to be something that I calculate into constructing my portfolio, then I'm going to use my own values, not what BlackRock says my value should be. I, I, Connor, I think the, that's the biggest point and kind of the biggest flaw with ESG, but there are underlying, um, you know, other flaws that I don't think get mentioned um, th that much. I think it's really, now that, you know, a company like BlackRock has standardized these values and standardized, you know, hey, if you do this, 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 and this, you're now an ESG company and now you get, you know, some bonus and you get added into our, um, you know, I into our fund. And so that kind of makes it, skewed in the in the wrong direction you know for you, you you mentioned that oil companies aren't put in there that might be valid uh for you know some person's uh you know morals or something like that but it also skews towards and if you look at any esg fund you'll see that the vast majority is profitable tech 
Why? Because they are generating a lot of cash flow and a lot of profits so they can invest into making these arbitrary, um, you know, maybe even minor, uh, you know, uh, achievements. So, hey, we're, you know, carbon neutral in the next five years or we plan to be carbon neutral. You don't have to do really anything right now to do that. All you have to do is say it. But then there are other things that you might have to invest a little money into achieving and that that morals or not, it could be just arbitrary, but those, those profitable companies that have the cash flow to achieve this, um, you know, uh, th th this label, um, can do that. Whereas other companies that might not be profitable or help don't care about having this ESG company, but are solely focused on growth and, you know, maybe have their own set of morals that they want to follow. Um, they'll invest in doing that instead of getting this ESG label. And so there are a lot of companies that are kicked out or not included in these ESG indexes because, uh, you know, they're not profitable or they're focusing on slightly different things other than these arbitrary, um, you know, gauges. Um, and so it just skews to a, a, a concentration and an industry that a lot of investors just might not want to have that much exposure to. Yeah, I think it comes down to... Jamie, I love what you wrote in... I think it comes down to. I love what you wrote in the doc, Jamie, about talking <laughs> the talk. Yeah, sorry, we keep talking over each other. You said talking the talk, like setting carbon neutral goals fifty years out, counts for as much as actual, you know, real action on an issue. And I love that because it's so true. You have Shell coming out and talking about how they're working towards getting becoming carbon neutral. I, I don't know. 100 years in the future or something or 50 years or something like that, you know, and it's like, does this really matter? Or are you just putting up a, you know, a, a false persona of who you are as a company in hopes of getting added to, you know, another fund so that you have more inflows? You know, like, I don't know. And to Jamie's point about getting included, like, so it's all big tech companies that are profitable. And I think that's because they can afford to play the game. Right. They can afford to have the the cost center of people sitting around and making these ESG reports um, and they can afford to care about that. That's so to true. get included. Right. So they can afford to play the game and afford to care about what the rules are. Um, and th the reason I don't really like the cycle this creates is because transparency matters so much for the ESG rating. It's not necessarily what are you doing, but it's also how much are you telling investors what you're doing? So the who, whatever company discloses the most in a lot of scenarios, I think can get the highest ESG rating because they're putting so much out there, right? So then it's in their best interest to make themselves look good. Um, and, you know, they're, they're able to play the game uh, and, they, and they can really get out there. But, you know, they make themselves look good and that's, really what the ESG ratings companies want to see more than action, I think. And I, I saw an interesting study um, in the Harvard Business Review. Um, it, was, it was finding one or citing one study that said they found that companies with bad news tended to throw in more ESG talking points, almost as if to cover that up, whereas companies reporting, you know, blockbuster earnings, like, oh, you know, we grew 100% year over year, um, we're super profitable now, they don't talk about ESG almost at all. Uh, and that really shows you what the companies, you know, really want to focus on and what really matters to them. So I, I just thought that was interesting. So it's also just a cover up if you want to talk about something like it's completely non-business related. If you make a small 
uh, you know, $1 million commitment to this specific, uh, you know, smaller entity that's helping the world become, I don't know, more carbon neutral. And because that company did that, because that company was transparent with that donation, they may get a better ESG review. Meanwhile, they're reporting Coinbase-like earnings, you know. And so it, it it just seems fake to me. Like I, as as an investor in some of these companies, it frustrates me because I don't care whether or not you are meeting these arbitrary values. Not to mention how dangerous I think that is with with a set, you know, arbitrary form of values that all these companies are striving for. And those values can be changed. And somebody, a group of people actually sets those values. And that doesn't speak for everybody. And so, I, you know, I think that's that's a little bit dangerous, too. Um, but, yeah, I think it's it, it can just be used to cover up, uh, you know, bad business and that group of people like that third party that always exists is something that bugs me as well because if you think you know moody's or the rating agencies are bad in terms of the um the way that they engage with their clients right the the rating agencies are paid by the companies that they're rating so there might be some some possible agency issues there uh, and some incentive to do the wrong thing i think that exists even more so in ESG because there's so many third parties without really an agreed upon standard of rating. Uh, and they'll sell things like carbon offset credits. That's a huge one. And what that really means most of the time is planting trees. And I saw an example the other day of, uh, of a company that decided they would offset a ton of their carbon emissions by protecting this land. And this, this isn't just one company, actually. There's plenty that do this. But it was already protected land. It was called a reserve. So they're coming in and saying, oh, we're going to protect this land. They, that land did not need to be protected. You're just doing that and throwing money at a non-issue so that you can call it ESG and sign off. And that's an easy way to solve your carbon emissions. Okay, so... I, I think we've kind of crapped on ESG uh, enough here. So I want to bring the question that one, one that I, you know, have, have myself, uh, a lot of investors, uh, myself included, want to invest in, you know, the, the, the betterment of our future. And, you know, to see, uh, we, we want to put money to where we think, uh, you know, companies that can, that can make our world better. So if not ESG, how do we do it then? Uh, you know, how, how would you guys go around, uh, you know, in, investing in your own version of ESG if, you know, a, a regular ESG fund that charges, you know, 100 basis points or 150 basis points is going to do it? To be quite honest, I, I don't really give a damn about <laughs> companies making the world a better place. I think I invest in companies that are, you know, if I see a direction that the world is going and there's some secular tailwinds that are pushing these businesses to fit in that future, in a very profitable way, I want to invest in those companies, uh, whether that's electric vehicles like Tesla. Do I think electric vehicles are that much better for the environment than, you know, hybrid or gas guzzling cars? I don't think there's actually that much of a major difference. And there's a lot of data to back that claim up. Now, after these cars reach over 100,000 miles, Yes, EVs are better for the environment, but there's a lot of issues surrounding that 
Um, it, you know, there's a lot of issues surrounding solar panels. There's a lot of issues surrounding, you know, collecting energy from wind. So all of these different things that are supposedly renewable, there's a lot of data that go against those actually being better for the environment. And I don't really care whether these are better for the environment or worse than the for the environment, but I do think that's uh, a form of energy that we are going to become reliant on in the future. And this is me as an investor. This is not me as a person. I try to separate those two. Uh, you know, it's it's what companies are going to be successful in the future, and those are the companies that I want to be invested in. Yeah, and kind of another thing from the Harvard Business Review was redundancy. Connor, I think you were kind of alluding to this a little bit, the idea that, you know, you can invest in a company that does good but doesn't necessarily need to be ESG. That's something that I love to see in a company, to use your example, like Tesla, I think doing great things for the environment, um, without necessarily needing that extra push like oh we're doing it to be included in an esg fund i, I doubt they're in any of them i think they just got revoked from the s p 500 esg fund for they some, did for they some did. reason that baffles me because uh, <laughs> i think they're doing you know the single most of any company to combat climate change um but anyway i think it's it's in a way redundant and this is something that's come up quite a bit because companies and management, yes, they should be thinking of their shareholders, but to some degree, they're thinking about their impact wider than that. They're thinking about their impact on all kinds of things. Like, you know, and there could be some overlapping factors in decision-making, right? The factors that lead to putting up solar panels on your building, it might be, oh, this is great for the environment, but it also might just be, hey, we can lower our bottom line. You know what I mean? We can depreciate this solar panel and get cheap electricity, and that's gonna help investors while at the same time that's ESG. So there's gonna be some some overlap and it's a bit redundant, I think, to call certain things ESG activity. Well, I think personally, okay, like look at electric vehicles, okay? I think electric vehicles are much better to drive. Um, they are eventually better for the environment than gas cars. Um, so if they can last a long time and those batteries can last 200,000 miles, great then that's better for the environment that's better for the world that's that's fantastic but i also think these things just perform better electric vehicles are better cars they're more fun to drive uh, in some cases you know they're safer and I, I i mean i think that's just the way that the world is going and so you know i think that's that's something to consider too you know it's like yeah, is it better for the environment? Yeah, but I think that's also just the way that the world is going, and it doesn't need to be forced. It's just like this is a better version of, you know, it's humanity developing and getting better. Yeah, I, I think that pretty much sums it up for, for ESG. I don't know if I'm going to keep harping too much unless there's something else you guys want to say. Jamie, I was going to ask you um, about your next point here. What's the role that analyst upgrades and downgrades play into your thoughts on stocks. Yeah. So this kind of came out of nowhere for me. I was just, you know, I, I was looking at some, some analyst upgrades um, for, you know, a, a, a couple companies. Cause I was just curious and um, you know, it, it got me thinking. So, you know, a lot of stocks, uh, you know, especially now when, you know, everything's getting hammered, analysts just love to pile on and just, uh, you know, Beat, beat down stocks even more by lowering their price targets. And so I don't pay that much attention to them. But that said, I mean, 
there's a lot of times where I do read these analyst upgrades and especially the downgrades to find bear cases, find additional bear cases that I've never thought about for uh, a lot of these companies. And, you know, especially this year, I, we're seeing a lot of companies get downgraded based off of, um, you know, oh, advertising headwinds, e-commerce headwinds, um, you know, uh, business budgets are declining, so they're going to spend less on software. So that's going to, uh, you know, that's why I'm lowering my price target. I don't pay attention to, uh, you know, some short-term headwinds that will affect the long term. But there are value, I, I, I think, um, there, there's value in some of these analyst upgrades and downgrades because they do provide, you know, some of the long-term thing, uh, you know, long-term, uh, you know, tailwinds. There, there are a lot of analysts that go up and just straight up say, yeah, the short term's looking tough for Roku stock, uh, you know, I'm pulling that out of the air. But the long-term thesis still looks great. The rise in, in uh, you know, streaming still looks great. But I'm downgrading this stock because I'm focused on the next 12 months. And I'm looking at and I'm like, wait, hold on. I'm a long-term investor. I don't care about the next 12 months. I care about the next 12 years. This downgrade is giving me a reason to buy. The person that's bearish right now says that the long-term future looks really bright. Um, so I... It, a lot of long-term investors just kind of disregard and don't pay attention to analyst upgrades and downgrades, and I get that. But I do think that there, there is some merit uh, to some of them. You just have to kind of read it closely and actually look and see what they're talking about, whether they're talking about the next 12 months or the next you know couple years and, and things like that. And so, um, yeah, I, I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on, on this, if you give uh, upgrades or downgrades any credit whatsoever. My spiel on this is, pretty quick. I think I, I give almost no credit to them uh, in terms of their impact on my own investing philosophy and my own theses. Uh, but to your point, sometimes there's awesome information to take from them and you know discard what you don't need and or you've already accounted for and bring in the new information. Um, but to me, it's, it's pretty simple. It's that it's in the banks and, and these companies that issue these price targets, it's in their best interest for people for people to keep buying stocks and to kind of promote a bull market. Uh, so there, therefore, there's more you know financial activity, more people are getting interested in the market. So it's in their best interest as a company. So I think that and the fact that these companies have relationships with the companies that they're covering, they're really pressured to issue buy reports, which, you know, I'm not super against because on one hand, I'm pretty optimistic about the market in general, but it just seems like there could be some reasons to be doubtful about the content and, and kind of the spin that are put on these reports. So I love the quote, I forget who said this, but they said the company didn't miss expectations or the company didn't miss analyst expectations, the analyst missed company earnings. And I think that's, it was something like that. And I love that quote because I think it's very true. And these analysts are, I mean, they're working hard. They're really smart people. They're a lot smarter than I am. And they get really close a lot for these different quarterly earnings that all these companies are, are releasing. So I'm not trying to take that away from them. But I think if you are a long-term investor, there's not really much point to be reading these three-month reports. If you're a trader, if you're investing for the short term, yeah, it's probably a good place to go to get an idea of what's going to happen with this company. And they are, I mean, decent. They, they never miss. Usually they don't miss that bad. Um, analysts don't. Sometimes they do. Sometimes there's flukes. But usually they're in the ball, the relative ballpark. So if you are trying to invest 
for three months, which I don't recommend, for less than a year, which I don't re recommend either, um, then sure, y you might want to you might want to look at some some analyst expectations for what's going to happen to these different companies. But at the same time, you know, I go to management guidance. You know, when when management is issuing guidance. I think that's a good place to go when you're trying to get the outlook for a different company. Uh, I think that's a better place to go when you're looking for the outlook for a company. Sometimes management doesn't issue guidance, and that could be an issue. But I think um, it's better to judge a company by meeting management or exceeding management expectations versus companies beating Wall Street expectations. Uh, I definitely give more weight to the management ones than the Wall Street I would agree. I yeah, would agree. I, I, I certainly do. Yeah. I just feel like sometimes the analyst expectations also just follow the stock movement, right? You'll see like, oh, the stock jumps 50% and then analysts start to follow it and trace it. And the same thing, they're kind of a lagging indicator on the way down. But I'm just you know, not super thrilled, as you can tell, about analysts. Um, but you were talking about long-term investing. I kind of want to move on to, to maybe our last topic for today and talk about the mega trends that drive our investment decisions. I mean, for me, if I haven't made it obvious, it, it really comes down to the transition to renewable energy um, and, and some themes in tech. But I'm curious, I think I can take guesses, but I'm curious to hear your guys' thoughts on what are the big trends that kind of frame the stocks that you invest in. Connor, you go first. I want to hear yours. What are some of the mega trends that drive my investment decisions? Yeah, like, okay. So there's... There's there's a there's a few different things that I look at. You know, there are macro related issues um, or macro level factors that I look at when I'm looking at you know secular tailwinds. It's like real estate, for example. We can get into this in a second. Um, I think there's a a, a massive um, problem coming to real estate in the next couple of years, if not in the next 12 months. So I'm staying away from that sector specifically. So that's not really um, something I'm looking for, but something that I try to stay away from. And the reason for that is a lot of the issues with the Fed and how many mortgage-backed securities they have on their balance sheet at $2.7 trillion worth. And they don't want to own those mortgage-backed securities. And if they dump all of those off the balance sheet, with their, which they're going to start dumping around $35 billion per month in September, uh, up to $35 billion a month, when they dump those low-interest mortgage-backed securities, what that does to mortgage rates is it pushes them up even higher um, than what they already are right now, sitting at about 5 6%. And so if you see a lot of volatility in the, you know, the mortgage rate space, developers find that really difficult. So that's something that I try to stay away from. Something that I look for um, you know, is, is just general... Um, you, you know, like right now, if you're if you're thinking about investing in cyclicals, I don't know if that's a great place to go, uh, and that is due to economic factors. If I'm trying to look at where I want to invest in, like I said earlier, I try to look at where the world is going, and that's not what drives all of my investment decisions, but it drives a good part of it. Why would you invest in a company that? you don't think is going to be around in 10 years or you don't think is going to be relevant in 10 years. John Deere, for example. John Deere is a company that I think is innovating. 
it, th that's, that's a major thing that I look for in companies is innovation. Are they innovating? It doesn't drive t stock performance. Innovation doesn't, but it can help stock performance, uh, and it can help build a business. And so that's something that I look for. Uh, if, you, if you see a secular tailwind like renewable energy, I think companies like STEM have a great chance at success because there's a major problem that they're fixing. That's another thing I look for. What is the problem that this business is fixing? STEM is fixing a massive problem, and that is energy storage because solar panels can collect energy, wind, energy, wind can collect energy, um, but there's no way to store it. And if you can't store it, that kind of makes renewable energy worthless because what if it stops what if the wind stops blowing and the rain starts falling and the sun's, you know, go, goes out for a week? You know, like things like that, you know, where there is a major problem to solve. Things like Tesla with EVs. I mean, I think they are making something better. They're driving, uh, you know, the auto space to new heights with the technology and the cars that they're coming out with. You know, I think solar energy is a, a secular tailwind as well because it helps people with energy prices specifically. Uh, you see like Europe right now, Europe, Europe is struggling. Um, that's not really due to lack of renewables, but you know, I think renewables could help the, the crunch that they're in right now. So those are some of the things that I look for, some of the things that I look out for. I would say on an economic level, a macroeconomic level, I look for risk factors, specifically like the ones I'm talking about in the real estate. For um, you know, secular tailwinds, I look for what are these companies going to be in 10 years? Where is the world going? How are they going to fit into the pie of what the globe is going to look like 10 years from now? For, for me, it's kind of based on what I want to see like in, in my future. That is really the big, the big question for me before I'm investing in any company. And I can, and if you really want me to, will make the case for all 40 plus stocks that I own, how they will make the future better in Looking some way, shape, or form. Looking forward to this portfolio that... reveal now. <laughs> Thousand I, subs, subscribe. I, I think this gets back to that this this ESG that we started at. I mean, I'm building my own you know, set of what I want my future to look like, um, and so that that is the um, you know the the question that I answer. And there are lots of different megatrends and and industries in with secular tailwinds that are kind of um, growing. So, is this industry making the world better? If yes, is the industry growing and in a secular tailwind and expected to grow, not for just the next year, but for the next two, the next five, the next 10 years, those are driving what, what I, um, you know, what I'm investing in. And then additionally, what I'm looking out for, what is something that is completely out of this company's control? Yes, COVID is, is something, but that's kind of hard to look at. And so the main concern that comes to me is a government power. You know, look at China. I mean, can China is just a complete oddball. You have no clue what China will do, and what will it, what it will impose on companies existing in that industry. So that is something I completely stay away from because if I cannot gauge what the future might look like for that company or for that company in China, I'm going to stay away because. I have no clue what the future is looking like, if it's actually in a secular tailwind or if the government one random day will say, you know what, we're going to stop you dead in your tracks. They did that for, um, what was it, online learning and tutoring or something like that. Um, a year or two back, they just said, no, this should be free. And so all online tutoring businesses, which was a huge business in China, basically just 
disappeared because now it's free. Uh, it's, you know, being, being regulated, uh, you know, a heck of a lot more than it, than it was. So, um, those, those are really the three big questions, uh, and, you know, three trends, I guess, that, that drive, uh, you know, all of my investment decisions. Very nice. Very nice. So it seems like you guys are more steering away from the, the risks that you see. And then also if there's a tailwind, like, okay, that's nice. Like I'm going to focus on that and, try to predict where the future is going to be and invest in what I want to see in the future. So that's good stuff. And I, I would really but, agree with most of that. But, but also you have to realize that a lot of the decisions that make me invest in the company are not on a secular tailwind basis, or it's not on a mega trend basis. You know, sometimes it's just a really good business a company like yeah. AutoZone. You know, I was I was tweeting out a chart of AutoZone saw that earlier tweet today. Before we started recording. Yeah, do do I think AutoZone has some math, massive secular tailwind, you know, pushing it forward? No. I don't think AutoZone it might not be any more relevant in ten years than it is today, but I think its returns, even if it has the same relevancy in ten years because it's buying back so much stock and has such great margins and it's generating so much positive free cash flow that it will be a fantastic investment. So not everything has to be like a, a 20X idea. Sometimes it can just be a really good business that management is performing phenomenally. Yeah. So that's something to take into consideration as well. I think I think um, waste management is another great example of that. Yeah. There's no secular tailwinds driving trash. If anything, um, you know, there there could potentially be you know a population decline. I mean, I that's not something I'm basing my thesis off of whether the population is going to decline or not. But I can tell you, with most of my certainty, that humans are going to generate trash. Trash is going to need to be picked up, and waste management is the leader, at least in North America. That's most of my thesis, and they are clearly making the better the, the world a better place. If waste management and all the garbage trucks in the world disappeared, our life would be terrible. We would be living in you know freaking the the Wally uh, you know land with you know everything's in trash. Like so, it, it, there doesn't have to necessarily be that secular tailwind, but having that you know. A sustainable business, a high quality business with a lot of switching costs or a lot of competitive advantages, um, you know, that still makes for a quality business. And, you know, obviously waste management is making our lives better. And if you're interested in more stocks like waste management, AutoZone, not necessarily the huge growers, but have like a huge niche that they're exploiting, they're very relevant and super profitable. Check out the videos we've done with Tyler Crow. He always brings a really interesting company to the table. Most of the time, I'm like, what are you talking about? I've never heard of this company. But then it'll be something like that where they absolutely dominate. Maybe they're not the biggest grower, uh, but that's okay. They're, they're a rock-solid business. And as an investor, uh, you know that makes me happy. But I think... That about wraps it up. Thanks for tuning into this episode, everyone. Wherever you listen, reminder, you can find us on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're coming out with our weekly podcasts and pretty much a video per day at this point. So we appreciate each and every one of you as we're closing in on 700 subscribers. For, from me, Connor, and Jamie, we'll see you next time.